Welcome to Socially Distant, Spiritually Close, a podcast dedicated to exploring the biggest spiritual questions of this complex and challenging moment. I'm your host, Rabbi Michael Knopf. Well, we'll take a few moments and, uh, and, and study and reflect a little bit on the Torah portion for today. As I mentioned earlier, our Parsha today, our Torah portion, Parsha Vayigash, opens in the middle of a story. Uh, it uh, begins as last week's portion ends uh, with uh, Joseph's brothers refusing to return to Canaan, to Canaan, uh, without their youngest brother, Benjamin, uh, whom Joseph had required uh, from them to uh, bring back to Egypt. Uh, and then uh, planted a silver goblet in Benjamin's uh, grain sack uh, and, uh, and then imprisoned him under those uh, false pretenses. Joseph then reveals his true identity and invites his brothers to return uh, with their father, Jacob, and bring uh, them and their families to live in Egypt. Uh, one of the things that's noteworthy, I think, about this Torah portion uh, in our time I see my chill, how my children watch TV now, uh, which is all streaming, and they don't know about cliffhangers anymore. There's no suspense anymore because if a show ends, you know, on a suspenseful note, three seconds later, the next episode comes on and uh, you get to see what happens then. So imagine uh, we are living in a time uh, PN, uh, pre-Netflix, uh, in which... <laughs> We uh, were studying last week's Torah portion uh, in which uh, Benjamin is uh, 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 falsely accused by Joseph and thrown into prison. Uh, the tension and the drama has been heightened over the past weeks because we know the significance of Benjamin in the story to uh, Jacob as the sole remaining son of uh, Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel, uh, after the brothers sell Joseph into slavery and uh, feign his violent death uh, to their father. Uh, and, uh, and the famine in Egypt that has stretched all over the known world heightens the stakes. The brothers hungry hat in hand come to Egypt for grain uh, only to find Joseph, who they don't recognize as Joseph, uh, is second in command, the person in charge of the food program in Egypt. Uh, and uh, Joseph takes it as an opportunity uh, maybe to test the mettle of his brothers, uh, maybe to test their growth, maybe just to exact some revenge on them. We don't know. He forces them to go and bring Benjamin back down, which wrenches their father's soul, but they, they uh, do it anyway because they are in a desperate situation, only to find that Joseph then imprisons Benjamin. And so our portion this week opens with Judah approaching Joseph to beg for Benjamin's life. Imagine the cliffhanger you would have had last week, waiting to see the conclusion of the story this week. Well, we have someone really wonderful to uh, help us make sense of all of this. Uh, a dear friend uh, and a wonderful guest uh, is joining us this Shabbat to talk about this portion and uh, so much else. Uh, Reverend Dr. Jim Somerville from Richmond's First Baptist Church. How are you? I'm well, Michael. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really uh, 
honored by the invitation and suspect that it has something to do with the fact that I grew up with five brothers. So I know a good bit about alienation and reconciliation and how brothers can hurt each other's feelings at the very least. I'm also very humbled to be here. It's, um, it's been wonderful to sit in on your worship for this first 45 minutes or so and realize that even though we share much of the same tradition, uh, there are some differences in the way that we worship. And I've just been sitting at your feet and learning today. Good to be with you. Well, that's that's uh, very kind in a, in a real role of a reversal for me because I uh, tend to sit at your feet to soak up your wisdom. Um, and I appreciate <laughs> that. Let me just ask you, um, uh, I know this was a you know, very uh, unusual Christmas season uh, for you, for your congregation. So I'm just first curious, you know, uh, how are you doing? How is your family doing? Um, and what was Christmas like at uh, First Baptist in, in the Somerville household? Well, thank you for asking. We were busy making plans at the beginning of this week, trying to figure out how to do our annual Christmas Eve service, usually held indoors at 5 and 11 p.m., this year, because of COVID-19, we decided to hold that service outdoors and then began to get weather reports, severe weather, possible tornadoes, and decided that we had to do something different. So on Wednesday evening, Michael, we, some of us went into the sanctuary and uh, recorded a, a brief Christmas Eve service that we could share with our congregation. It was not the same, but we realized that in this year, nothing has been the same. It was the perfect 2020 Christmas Eve service. That's what it was. Uh, but the next day, Christmas day for us was wonderful. I went to my daughter Ellie's house. She uh, is the proud mother of my first and only grandson, Leo, who is now six and a half months old. So my wife and I got to spend the day with our daughter and her husband, our grandson and my wife's mother. It felt a lot like Christmas to us. Great celebration. Thank you for asking. And uh, yes, uh, you have a, a new grandchild uh, just this year. So uh, as we say, mazel tov, congratulations. Thank you. The best thing to come out of 2020 so far. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So uh, was there a, a Christmas message that you shared with your congregation this year? You know, I was thinking about um, what it's like to be outside because I was planning to preach to my congregation outside and just what, what it is like to be exposed to the elements and to be dependent and to feel fragile and vulnerable. I'm a, a big backpacker. I do a lot of camping. I find myself exposed to the elements often. And sometimes because of poor preparation, much more exposed than usual. And those are times when we become especially dependent on the goodness of God to shelter us and protect us and bring us out of those kinds of trials. So it, it just feels again, like this year we've been extremely vulnerable and our lives feel fragile and you know how important to have someone who is watching over us and caring for us in times like these powerful thanks for sharing that and and vulnerability is really i, I think a a core theme in the torah portion that we're studying this week uh you know, there's there's vulnerability kind of present in the story with the with the famine that's ravaged 
uh, according to last week's portions as the whole earth, right? The whole world is ravaged by this famine. Um, so there's a vulnerability of, uh, you know, of scarcity of food, of hunger. Um, there's the vulnerability uh, that Jacob opens himself up to in uh, letting Benjamin go down with the other brothers. There's the vulnerability of uh, Judah, of kind of going for broke in, in uh, approaching uh, this uh, uh, royalty in, uh, in Egypt to plead for the life of his brother. There's vulnerability in Joseph ultimately breaking down in tears and revealing himself to his brothers. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, you uh, have uh, both preached on this uh, text, I, I know, uh, in the past. Um, and, you know, every time we encounter these texts, uh, they, they tell us something new. So I'm wondering, um, how have you thought about this text in the past? And, and how are you thinking about it this year? Well, I've been thinking about it a lot in the last few days, knowing that I would be with you this morning. And I'm, I'm really impressed by what a big bite of scripture you take at one time. I mean, chapters and chapters of Genesis that you're... Jew, Jewish people are not good at portion control. Mm, just can't do that. We, I was thinking in my church, we would take a little paragraph, you know, maybe four little paragraphs of scripture and we study those and think about them. But this is a huge section and there's so much in this story. I love this narrative portion uh, of the Torah and love to read these stories about Joseph and his brothers. Again, because I had so many brothers, feel like I understand and identify. Um, I'm just, I'm really fascinated this time around by Judah's role in this story. I had to go back and, and read um, Genesis 37, you know, where Joseph is thrown into a pit, a cistern, a pit. I don't know what your preferred reading is, but there he is, and Reuben is planning to circle back around later and rescue his brother Joseph. Judah seizes the opportunity to sell him into slavery, to get something out of all this. You know, let's not just kill him. That would be a waste. Let's sell him, and then we could end up with 20 shekels of silver. That would be a good day's work, right? So just interested to see Judah's role. He's the one who had the idea to sell Joseph into slavery. Reuben was the one who had the idea to come around and save his brother from his other brother's evil plans. And I'm just noticing the mob mentality in this story, that it says the brothers, when they're all together, they have this idea to, to kill him. Here comes this dreamer. Let's kill him and be done with his dreams forever. The brothers say that. But then a brother, Reuben, decides to save him. Another brother, Judah, decides to sell him. When all the brothers are group thinking, their group thinking is not very good. They, they seem to look out for themselves in a way that is very selfish. But individually, some of these brothers kind of step forward. So very interested in the way this reading begins this week with Judah approaching Joseph. Please, my Lord, let now your servant speak something into my Lord's ears and let not your wrath be kindled against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh. So the same one who decided to sell him into slavery now comes and says, you know, let me be your slave rather than Benjamin, if that's the way it has to be. So is, that, is this story then about 
Judah's growth and Judah's transformation? It's got to be part of it at least. Um, I, I do think Judah must have nursed some regret for a long time, you know, uh, thinking of what he had done to his brother. And then to be in this situation uh, and, and maybe to feel like there's a way to, um, to tilt the balance in his favor again, to offer himself, whereas before he offered his brother. Mm. This is how reconciliation works. You know, you really do have to find in yourself that thing that is willing to give up something, to sacrifice. And he seems to find that here. Yeah, I, I wonder about that in, you know, in, in Joseph's big reveal um, about the reconciliation that happens here. And it, 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 you know, raises a question on the entire narrative, which is, you know, is, is, is Joseph, you know, engaging in sort of an elaborate uh, scheme to look, to discover whether or not his brothers have actually changed. Um, and it has to be a blind test, right? Like, in other words, like he can't reveal himself first and then see if they ask for his forgiveness. He has to see if they've actually uh, made any kind of transformation um, that would uh, enable him to, uh, to, to forgive them. Um, or is, uh, is, the, is the story not really so altruistic on Joseph's part? Uh, does, does he have not uh, particularly... Um, uh, uh, wholesome motives uh, in what he's doing? Is he trying to get revenge on them? And then ultimately the reveal is, okay, you've been through enough. You've suffered as much as I've suffered and and now we're even. You know, I, I have to say, I tend to read it this way, that Joseph is is trying to get a little revenge on these brothers. And I, I hope that's not disrespectful, but I, I see him being very human. He's, he's shocked to see his brothers in Egypt he doesn't really know how to respond. And then over time, he takes this particular course of action where he says, I will withhold my identity a little longer. I'll see how they react when I do this and how they respond when I say that. And, you know, back and forth. But this, the game about putting the money back in the mouth of their sacks and then putting this silver chalice in the mouth of Benjamin's sack, that, that really seems to be devious on Joseph's part. He is is working to get his brothers to confess their sins so that he can forgive them. It's kind of how it feels. Right, so, so what are we to take from this? Because, you know, I think a lot of times, you know, in, in our lives, um, you know, we, we hold on to, uh, to, to hurt that other people have inflicted upon us. You know, we, we, we hold on to those uh, grudges uh, that we that we have with other people, and uh, and and so many of us are reluctant to forgive uh, because we don't want to be hurt again by the individual that hurt us, or we don't want to show that we're a person that sort of you know lets go uh, so easy, so that other people won't won't hurt us. And you know we're reluctant to forgive unless we know for sure uh, that the uh, that the other person you know has has changed and and won't do the same thing to us again. Uh, or uh, sometimes we don't even forgive even when we do know that because you can't take back what had been done in the past. So, um, and sometimes we want to just inflict as much harm on the other person as they've inflicted on us. Um, so what what do we what can we learn about forgiveness? And reconciliation from from this story. Well, first of all, I'd 
want to be very careful about who is made an example in this story. I, I don't want to see Joseph's behavior as a good example right. of how to handle reconciliation. Right. Right? I, I, think think, I think that's so important because so often we say, okay, well, you know, the characters in the Bible, right? And he's supposed to be like on the good, you know, one of the good ones. So <laughs> right, everything that he's doing must be the right thing. We got to kind of wrap ourselves into knots trying to justify what he's doing. He is one of the good ones, but it takes him a while to get there. And, and again, this is one of the things I love about scripture. These characters are very three-dimensional. You know, there's some growth that occurs in the course of the story. And when you think about how this story could have been rewritten, right? If you were writing it, you might say, and Joseph's brothers came to Egypt and he saw them and said, oh, my brothers, I'm so glad you're here. Here, have everything I've gained in Egypt. But that's not what he said. He didn't reveal himself and then played this cat and mouse game with them and eventually says, I'm Joseph, your brother. So, yeah, there, there are maybe some lessons to be learned here about forgiveness. Again, going back to Judah, who comes to Joseph and says, listen, take me, not Benjamin. I, I will be responsible for his life. In fact, this is what Judah has said to his father. You know, if I go down there with Benjamin and they don't let Benjamin come, you know, I will offer myself that you can have both my sons, you know, in exchange for Benjamin. I, I give myself freely. Um, so that kind of growth on Judah's part, he's come a long way from the boy who sold his brother into slavery. Now he himself is willing to be a slave. And I, I do think when it comes to reconciliation, it has to begin with me. I cannot wait for the other person to step forward and say, I'm sorry. In every case, I have to be willing to say, look, this relationship is so important to me that I am willing to sacrifice whatever needs to be sacrificed in order to regain the relationship. And, and I think here Judah is offering himself. So if you want an example, there's a good example. How can I offer myself for the sake of reconciliation? How can I lay down my pride, my hurt feelings, whatever has stood in the way and, and offer myself as a kind of sacrifice for the sake of reconciliation? Mm. So the, the idea of a, a sacrifice for the sake of reconciliation um, is, is, a, is a powerful and challenging idea. I know something that's, that's very present in, in Christian tradition. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and I think it's a powerful insight from the story. And I'm, I'm thinking about the, the question of reconciliation also you know, as we conclude 2020 and begin 2021, 2020 has been, you know, an, an incredibly difficult year on so many fronts. And I think that the question of reconciliation, of forgiveness um, is present in, in a lot of our minds, whether it's because of the, uh, of, a, of a very bitter and divisive election season, which um, uh, does not yet seem to be fully complete. And we, we hope that, uh, uh, that, that it will be, uh, forcefully and clearly resolved uh, in, in, in the coming weeks. But, um, but you know, how do you, you know, we, we have a situation in which, you know, it seems like, you know, two halves of the country, um, you know, passionately hate one another, right? They're, these are two brothers that are or siblings that are alienated <laughs> from one another, right? And, and how does one reconcile with the other in that kind of environment? How do we reconcile um, our, uh, our anger? I know I feel a lot of this, you know, anger, about you know how uh, how leaders mismanaged uh, the the pandemic and you know resulted in so much more hardship and so much more death than uh, than, than than was necessary 
um, so many more burdens to bear for all of us than were necessary. How do we, uh, how do we reconcile um, with with our with our leaders with each other about that question? We and then we were in the midst of a you know huge reckoning uh, related to uh, racial injustice in in this country, right? And we're reading a story right now about reconciling with your former enslavers, right? So um, how do you do that? Like, what is the story? What could the story teach us, share with us about what reconciliation means in in 2020 moving into 2021? Mm, Great questions. Are you a rabbi or something? You ask such good questions. And I have no answers for them. No answers, just questions, right. Uh, I have several answers and you know. So this is interesting and and let me speak from personal experience. I have a brother a year older than I am. We always called him the smart one in the family. And I mean, he was smart. He went to Phillips Exeter and Dartmouth and Harvard Law School. we are on the opposite side of the fence politically and religiously, really. But we had an opportunity to visit with each other recently because my mother was dying. She was in a nursing home in West Virginia. I drove there, he lives nearby. We ended up sitting outside about 10 feet apart having lunch carrying on this conversation and trying very hard not to let it drift into the religious or the political realms because that's what you're not supposed to talk about, right? Religion or politics. Uh, but my brother and I grew up together. We, we talk about everything and eventually our conversation turned toward racial justice. And my brother was speaking to me and became so impassioned at one point that I could see the aerosol spewing out of his mouth, you know? That's what you watch out for during a pandemic. Right, yeah, aerosol, that, that just right? tricked me in a very real way, yeah. But, but I'm outside, you could see the aerosol as he's just venting, you know, he's in a passionate rage about something. And in fact, I said to him, um, you're, you're kind of spewing aerosol right now. And so he wrote to me later and said, I, I'm sorry for that, you know, sorry for the kind of passion that would lead to aerosol spraying. And so we, over the course of the next few days, tried to get back on track again with each other and and writing and certainly concerned about our mother. And then he said something and I said something back and he said something else. And finally, I, I wrote to him and I was so passionate about what I was saying. I wasn't typing in all capital letters, but was saying something to him and uh, later wrote to him and apologized. I said, I I believe that if you could have seen me in that moment, you would have seen me spraying aerosol. And we don't need to be this way with each other. We are brothers. We came from the same womb, our mother's womb, the one we're trying to care for together right now. Can I just say to you and all of you who are listening, um, to have that kind of relationship with a brother, to, to always want it to be really healthy and whole and to find again and again that you're being pushed apart by differences of opinion that you hold so closely. Um, it's just difficult. <laughs> it's a regular challenge in my life. And yet I would say my brother and I have negotiated that about as well as anybody. We still love each other and we say so without shame. 
uh, when we can, we throw our arms around each other, but so difficult to stay on the right side of relationship in a world that seems to want to divide us more than ever before. It takes work. Thank you for sharing that, that powerful story um, and, and being so candid uh, about that experience. And it reminds me that uh, that when Joseph ultimately reveals himself to his brothers, right? He he can't. He in chapter forty-five, he he can't stand it anymore. He uh, he he breaks out into these uh, uh, these extraordinary cries, and he says, "Vayomer Yosef elechav." Joseph says to his brothers, "Ani Yosef, I am Joseph. Haod avichai, is my father still living?" So, you know, what Joseph appeals to in that moment or points to in that moment is a recognition, uh, exactly like you're saying, right, that, that, that we have the same father, right, that, that we are bound together uh, in relationship, whether we like it or not, right, and that commonality um, is, is a point of reconciliation. Our tradition, I know yours does your tradition as well, um, uh, shares that idea that, that all humanity comes from the same parent, right? That we all descend from the same source, right? So we, so we uh, uh, inhabit a, a world that we share with our siblings. All of them are siblings, right? People on the other side of the political aisle, people on the other side of a racial divide, right? They're, so how do we then think back to, uh, to how do we appeal to our our, our ultimate commonality, that fundamental relationship that we, that we have um, uh, and say, you know, we come from the same womb, we have the same father, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, as long as our father's alive, um, we are called to be in relationship with one another. Yes, my brother is my womb mate, right? Right. To coin the phrase, a womb mate, we, we came from the same womb, we weren't in there at the same time. But as you say, that is every person living on the face of this planet. We, we are brothers and sisters, even when we don't know it. And if we do know it, if we can pay attention to it, if we can see each other that way, it makes a huge difference in how we approach each other and how we work toward reconciliation. I sometimes say about racial reconciliation, when people use that phrase, that um, the best definition of reconciliation I've heard is to make friendly again, right? We're gonna be reconciled. We're going to become friends again. And I say where racial reconciliation is concerned, it's hard to use that word because, you know, we haven't been friendly, right? We, we brought boatloads of Africans here and used them for slaves. It's hard to be friends under those circumstances. So we're looking more toward conciliation, not reconciliation. And, and I think that's true for all of us as well. If we've been friends before, then we wanna do everything in our power to restore lost friendship. But if we haven't been friends before, let's become friends, whatever that takes, right? So for me to sit in on this synagogue service today, as a way to become friends with people I might not spend all my time with. Otherwise, it's a way to enter into somebody else's, to be invited in, thank you, Michael, 
uh, to somebody else's space where we can see the commonality that we share and understand. There's a whole lot of, of uh, familiarity, to use a good family word, familiarity about our experience that makes us all brothers and sisters. Right, and it's and it's a recognition. Uh, it requires a recognition of our uh, of our fundamental equality, right? That uh, and and that's I think what what is part of you know why we use the language sometimes of reckoning uh, with racial injustice in, in this country is that maybe reconciliation needs to happen. But in order for reconciliation to happen, um, those who have historically and still systematically uh, wield power and enjoy privilege over uh, another group of people have to reconcile themselves to the reality that we are, that we are fundamentally equal and to create a, a, a systems and structures that reflect that. And that's part of, um, that's part of the process as well. Well, we're running uh, short on time and I'm so grateful to have you with us and, and to uh, benefit from your, from your wisdom. I'm wondering if you have any, um, thoughts that you can leave us with um closing as, thought closing thoughts as we uh, close out uh, this yes. portion of the service and close out 2020 well i will say this the ezekiel 37 passage i i love ezekiel 37 but what do i love the valley of dry bones right that's a fun one to preach i don't usually read down to verse 15 and beyond but this idea that that judah and joseph these two sticks are put together and bound together, especially in light of this story, Judah and Joseph, Judah, the one who sold his brother into slavery, and Joseph, the one who was able to be reconciled with him. These two bound together going forward. And I think, what a hopeful sign. I'm gonna go outside and pick up a couple of sticks and get a piece of twine, and I'm gonna wrap them together and tie them tight and, and put that on my mantelpiece as a vision of the future, to look toward 2021, thinking those of us who have been separated by sin of whatever form can be bound together in brotherhood. And that's my hope. Uh, that's so beautiful. Thank you so much for that. Uh, just be careful if you, you know, uh, Ezekiel was from time to time uh, looked on uh, with uh, uh, some, uh, some skepticism uh, related to uh, some of the more, you know, odd uh, prophecies and prophetic behaviors that he engages. I don't want you to get a reputation, but the imagery, the result of it uh, is, uh, is really beautiful and extraordinary uh, vision for us all to look forward to and to work toward uh, in the year to come. Um, Reverend Dr. Jim Somerville, it is such a joy and such a privilege to be able to talk with you uh, today and to learn with and from you uh, and uh, wish you a Merry Christmas and a happy and healthy new year to you and your congregation and your family. Thank you so much, Michael. Thanks for having me. It's been a great honor. This has been Socially Distant, Spiritually Close with Rabbi Michael Knopf. I hope that this episode has helped you find a little faith and hope, enrichment and uplift during this complex and challenging time. If you haven't already, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you won't miss an episode. Please also rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice so that others will have an easier time finding us and joining in the conversation. 
socially distant, spiritually close, is recorded during virtual gatherings of my congregation, Temple Bethel in Richmond, Virginia. Socially distant, spiritually close is produced by Dr. Gillian Frank. Our theme music is composed and produced by Stephen Frost. Our cover art was designed by Judith Russian using a photograph by Miriam Aniel. I have been your host, Rabbi Michael Knopf. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other.